Well, let's turn our attention to the Lord and pray once more. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the participation that we can have with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we believe that you are bringing this world towards its needed redemption. We believe that you, Father, created all things out of nothing through your Son, Jesus Christ. We believe that you've made us in your image, yet we have sinned and fallen short. We believe that it's through your Son that you are bringing about a new creation. As he himself was consumed by the curse of sin on the cross to the point of death, yet still was brought back to life and made resurrected. Lord, we believe that we who have faith in Christ have risen with Christ and will be raised with Christ. And we believe that now as those who are united with Jesus and temples of the Holy Spirit, you've made us witnesses by the Spirit's power to spread this news of new creation and redemption throughout your world so that your redemptive rule in the kingdom of God would expand amongst all the earth. Lord, thank you for this call. Thank you for this purpose. Thank you for the partners which we have in the gospel through the McDonald's and others, Lord, who are going to the ends of the earth for the work of the Great Commission. And thank you for the role that we have here and now in our families, in our neighborhoods and communities, in the schools that we attend, in the workplaces where we go, and in our families where we are ambassadors for Christ, where we are witnesses for the gospel. You know, Lord God, we recognize that we are feeble men and women. We are but dust. So Lord God, would you make us a people who cooperate with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that your power would be expressed through us in the expansion of the kingdom through the message of the gospel, and that we, Lord God, would not be disheartened or short-sighted or dull, but that we would expect this power because you have promised it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our ability to be able to cooperate together in relationships is really, in a lot of ways, based on expectations. Uh, Parents, you had an expectation for your kids to get them out of bed and into the car this morning. Maybe that worked well today, maybe it didn't. If it didn't, don't worry, another week is coming. Uh, If you want to be able to work well with your coworkers or your supervisor, that really develops based on expectations. If you have a teacher or a professor, in order to be able to work well and be successful, that's really based on expectations. Our ability to cooperate well together and be successful in those relationships is based on our expectations of one another. We read the whole chapter of Acts uh, 1 today, but I'm specifically going to preach verse 12 to 26. And when we enter into this point of the life of these first disciples, we see within them an expectant people. But an expectant people who were waiting. They were given the promise that they would receive the Holy Spirit. That they would be witnesses for Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. But after receiving the promise, they were still waiting 
for that power. And the purpose that the church has with the power of the Holy Spirit in the proclamation of the gospel is a beautiful, inspiring purpose. We are called to be agents of God to bring his redemptive change to the world. We should hold fast to the truth that as we sow this seed of the message and it takes root, it will grow 10, 50, 100 times. But we should also remember that we don't have the power to be able to affect that change. And often, when we don't see the power of the kingdom at work, we can get disheartened we can become dull and relaxed in the work that God has called us to do. I know that I can. I hope that as we go through this passage, Acts 1, 12 to 26, that the priorities of these disciples between the power, or excuse me, the priorities of these disciples between the promise and receiving the power, these priorities they exhibited will recalibrate our expectations. Because they were waiting, and in their waiting, they did some kind of things that seemed boring and mundane. They had a prayer meeting, not often the most highly attended meeting, which I hope that we buck that trend. And they had a committee meeting. But in this prayer meeting and committee meeting, we see their priorities as an expectant people who trusted God would exhibit the power that he promised. And I believe if we adopt these priorities in our church, that we can expect to see God's power through the gospel for his kingdom at work amongst us. There are three priorities that this church had as people who expected to see God's power at work. The first one we see in verse 12 to 14. Look at it with me there. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. And when they entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Then I have to flip the page, but at verse 24, we see this priority expressed again, verse 24, and they prayed and said, you Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take place, the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered among the 11 apostles. The first priority we see of this church and throughout the entire early church is that they were devoted to prayer together. The church that expects God's power will be a church that is devoted to prayer together. Are you? So it was a, probably about 10 days in between the promise of the Spirit on the day of ascension and the power of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the disciples didn't know that it would ten, be 10 days. Jesus just said, go back to the city and wait. And they went back to the city and they waited. 
But while they were waiting in between the promise and the power, they were devoted to prayer. And in their time of prayer, out of their time of prayer, the congregation finalized through Peter's leadership the choice for an apostle to fill the spot that was vacated by Judas. And they confirm it through prayer. As you read throughout the rest of the book of Acts, it's very obvious that prayer was natural and instinctive to these first disciples. Let me actually show you. In Acts 2.42, the church was meeting day by day in the temple and in houses being devoted to prayer. Acts 4.31, the church was filled with the spirit for continued boldness after prayer. Acts 9.40, the apostles received miraculous visions and performed healings with prayer. Acts 12.5, Peter was supernaturally delivered from prison while the church was in prayer. Acts 13.3, Paul and Barnabas were called by the Spirit for missionary work through prayer. Acts 14.23, new elders were ordained to local churches with prayer. Prayer, Acts 16.25, Paul and Barnabas were arrested in prison, yet still rejoiced with prayer. Prayer was woven through the entire culture of the relationships and interactions of the members of these first disciples. Is it like that in your heart, in your family, in your small group? when in you interact with others on a Sunday morning. No healthy church would say that prayer is unimportant. I think any church would say, of course we prioritize prayer. Of course we expect it. Tom Rayner is a church leader in the States who's known as an expert in church health. Because he was known as an expert in church health many years ago, people started to solicit his help to help do an audit audit of their church after it closed its doors. So like after churches died, they called Tom Rayner and he went in and tried to figure out why. And after doing a handful of these audits, he wrote a book called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church. And in it, he says that one of the eight symptoms of a dying church is that it rarely has meaningful corporate prayer. Listen to what he says. I think it'll be on the screen. He says, you see, most churches, almost to the day they shut the doors, had some type of prayer time. It may have been part of the worship service. It may have been with some type of fellowship, like a Wednesday night or Wednesday evening meal. I would ask them, do you think that this time was a meaningful time of prayer? Do you think that's how the New Testament church prayed? When really it was just prayer that would like open a meeting or close a meeting, right? Inevitably, there would be a pause and then an admission. No, they said. It was more like a routine or a ritual. It would hardly qualify as corporate prayer in the New Testament sense. Not coincidentally, prayer and the health of a local church went hand in hand. When the church is engaged in meaningful prayer, it is both the cause and the result of greater church health. Every church would say that prayer is a priority, but is it meaningful prayer? Is it expectant prayer? Routine or ritual prayer is just like ceremonial, right? 
You might have watched the uh, ordination of the new king, and you see a lot of ceremonial things. And they'll pull it out when they ordain, or excuse me, or they um, crown a king. But it's really just a ceremonial thing. Even if you look at the House of Commons, you'll see that there are ceremonial rituals that they have to open a sitting and to close a sitting. But it's really just something they do because it's something they do. Is that what prayer's like for you? Is it something you do because it's something you do? Or is it fervent, zealous, expectant, corporate prayer? Real prayer like this isn't ceremonial or ritual. Real prayer like this is more like speaking a second language. Learning to become devoted to prayer in a manner that treats prayer like a second language, that's, that's hard. That's not easy. Sometimes prayer feels foreign. It feels unnatural. You're sitting at our monthly prayer meeting. We're sitting in a circle. Oh my goodness, it's two people from me. Oh my goodness, it's one person from me. It's my turn to pray and you don't know what to pray. That kind of sounds what it's like when you're learning a language. You travel over to France and okay, I took grade nine French and I get to the front of McDonald's and I like, uh, bibliotheque? <laughs> That's what prayer sometimes feels like. It takes effort. How many, how many small group meetings have you been in where you spend one minute talking to God to open the prayer, the small group time and to close the prayer time in two hours and 28 minutes talking about God with very little time where you're actually talking to God. Don't you hate it when you're in a conversation and someone's talking about you and you're right there and they don't even acknowledge you? How often do we go through fellowship where we talk about God and we so often neglect talking to God? Yeah, I'll pray for you. Now or like later? But when prayer becomes a second language, when we think in the language of prayer, we can be talking about God, but then pause and acknowledge the God who is here and the God who is with us. When we begin to learn to pray like this, then when we gather to pray like this, we can learn to be devoted to prayer together. Do you think in the language of prayer in your everyday conversations? Do you acknowledge that God is with you and that you can access his throne of grace at any moment, at any time, in any circumstances, and then do it? When someone shares a struggle with sin with you, when you look at your calendar and you don't know how everything fits in, when you hear another distressing story on, your, on the news, is your instinctive, natural, second language response to turn to the God who's there and God who listens. I think we'll learn to speak this language and be devoted to prayer when we truly believe, not in theological theory, but in real life experience, a few basic principles. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Like, do you really acknowledge that? Whether you're a mom at home with your kids, 
whether you're going out on a long commute on another day to work and you know you're supposed to be ambassador for Christ and you know there's a person who has an antagonistic view of Christianity, do you really believe that you don't have any power in you? Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Do you really believe that? And on the other hand, God can do more abundantly than we can ever ask and imagine. Do you really believe those two things? Really, abundantly more than you can ask or imagine to his glory in the church. When we believe these things, more and more, we will expect that God can work. We will turn to him at a moment, speak to him and trust in him and wait on him. Children learn to speak because they first hear their parents speaking and then they just mumble along with syllables and then they can string together words and then they can make sentences. We can speak to God because he's first spoken to us through scriptures. Acts 12 verse, uh, 1 verse 12 to 26 outlines a church that expect a church that expects God's, God's power will prioritize devoted prayer and it knows how to pray because of its second priority. It holds firm conviction in the scriptures. This is the second priority of a church that expects God's power from this passage. A church that expects God's power will be devoted to prayer together and it will hold firm conviction in scripture. See, they had here a prayer meeting and then they had a committee meeting. They wanted to be able to determine who is gonna fill the vacated apostleship from Judas after he took his own life, after he betrayed Jesus. We need a 12th apostle. So when this important decision came up, what influenced their decision-making process? What guided the steps that they would take? Their firm conviction in scripture determined what they would do to be able to establish an important decision. A church that expects God's power must be guided by a firm conviction in Scripture. But what did they really believe about Scripture? Look at verse 15 and then verse 16 with me, and we'll see some unique things that Peter and the church believed about the Scriptures. Verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, brothers... The scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. A few words here that speak immense volumes about what they believed about God's word and what we believed about God's word. They had the conviction that the scriptures were inspired by God, are inspired by God. See, the 66 collection of literature that we have in the Christian scriptures is a library. It's a library of different genres, by different authors, written through different times. But every word and all the words were given by inspiration of God. Second Peter says that men spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter looks at the Psalms and he said, though it was David penning it, it was the Holy Spirit speaking it. We do not believe that this is just one other book assembled amongst a collected of other volumes of human wisdom. We believe 
that this is the spoken word of God. And as God created all things by the power of his spoken word out of nothing, so it's the scriptures that give life to the church. And so also, as the scripture is inspired by God, so it is the thing by which the church has authority from God to make decisions and to act. The church is inspired by God, uh, by uh, the word of God. It is its authority from the word of God to speak nothing of the other things we see in here, of the coherence of scripture, of the relevance of scripture. Everything that we have to be able to expect God's power must come as being directed from God's word. Whether it's at the elders table, whether it's in your small group, whether it's in your marriage, with your kids, at your job, with your friends, the first and highest authority must be brothers, the scriptures says. Do you treat God's word like this in your life? Jesus said that his word is a rock to build our lives on and anything else that we would build our lives on is merely sinking sand. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will not pass away. And when we experience what God's word is like when we do it, because Jesus said, blessed is the one who does not just hear my word, but hears my word and does it. When we experience the blessing of hearing and doing God's word, we will enjoy scripture as what it describes itself to be. It is like bread that nourishes us. It is like honey that's sweet to us. It is like a light, a lamp that enlightens us. It is satisfying water that quenches us. God's word changes us and transforms us. Have you experienced this? A church that expects God's power will prioritize a devotion to prayer together. And it will prioritize a firm conviction in God's word. It can't just be those men that are ordained to the role of pastor. Notice how it was Peter leading and the congregation following. We all must hold firm and must hold fast to this in each and every generation. That the scripture is inspired by God. It is the authority of God. And in this way we'll truly be the salt and light that God has called us to be. We will truly be able to influence and add a different flavor of seasoning and preserve what is good and shine a light into our culture. We will be able to have an authentic witness for Christ. And that's the third priority that we see of the first disciples here in Acts 12, Acts 1, 12 to 26. If we're going to be a church that expects God's power, we need to prioritize being devoted to prayer together, a firm conviction in scripture, and we need to prioritize an authentic witness of Christ. So in this committee meeting, the disciples wanted to fill the vacated role, but I think it's important to ask why. Why did, why would, did it even matter that they had a 12th Apostle, wasn't 11 enough? Well, if, if we need, are, are going to understand why it was important for them to have a 12th apostle, we need to understand what the function of apostle actually was. See, the apostles 
as Peter himself said, we're to be eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says that in verse 22. Okay, but if you need eyewitnesses, aren't 11 witnesses enough? Isn't that sufficient evidence? Why do you need a 12th witness? 12 eyewitnesses were valuable, but 12 apostles fulfilled the promise that Jesus made to the apostles that determined the purpose of why they existed. It wasn't just being eyewitnesses. It wasn't less than that, but it wasn't just that. Jesus made a promise to his apostles in Luke 22, verse 28 to 30. Jesus said to his apostles, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you, the 12, may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, the apostles were not just witnesses to the historical validity of the resurrection. They were. But the apostles, the 12, stood as symbols. That is, there were 12 tribes in Israel. So these 12 men represent the restored kingdom that God had promised. And the resurrected Christ is its promised king. They wanted an authentic witness of Christ, the historical validity of his resurrection, and the symbolic significance that God was indeed redeeming the world he created and extending his redemptive rule through his son, Jesus. So who did they pick? Well, they put forward two men. Verse 23, you can see, and they put forward to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also Justice, and Matthias. It seems kind of interesting because there's two men and there's one guy, Matthias, but this, do you notice how many names this other guy has? Look at it there with me. Verse 23, Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice. This would be really confusing, I think. Why does this guy have three names? Well, it's actually not that complicated. It's pretty interesting. Some of you actually have three names in ways that you may not realize. My son has three names. My son, his given name is Timothy, and we picked that uh, because of its meaning. It means honor God. But because his mom is Korean and we really want to honor the Korean heritage, he has a Korean name, and his Korean name is Young, and that in Korean has a comparable meaning to what Timothy means, like give glory to God. And uh, because he's a cute little chubby boy, his nickname is Timbit. <laughs> <laughs> So he has three names. He's Timothy, also Chu Young, called Timbit. <laughs> and some of you have three names too. You have your um, name of the mother language that your parents had, and then you have an English name, and then you have a nickname. And that's probably what happened with this guy Joseph called Barsabbas. Barsabbas is probably the nickname. It means son of Sabbath. And then Justice is probably like the uh, the, Aram, the Greek equivalent of his Hebrew name, Joseph. But it really doesn't matter because he wasn't picked. <laughs> and Matthias is the one that is picked. But the significance of having this guy, Matthias, is they've reached the 12. And because they have 12 now, they have eyewitnesses 
and they have symbolic representatives. They have an authentic witness for Christ. And if we are going to be a church that expects God's power, we must prioritize an authentic witness of Christ. And that means that we have the true declaration of the gospel from our pulpit and through the members in our pews. That when you share Christ Jesus, you share Christ Jesus died and risen from the dead. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus was crucified according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. When you are with your coworkers, your family, or your neighbors, as the Apostle Paul says also in 1 Corinthians, if we do not preach Christ crucified, then we preach a neutered gospel. Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. 1 Corinthians 1, 24 to 26, it may be a stumbling block to some and folly to others, but those who are being saved is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Jesus is not some legend to pile up amongst the other myths and legends of religious past. He is a true man who truly lived and walked on this earth. You can look through historical records of ancient documents outside of the scripture and Josephus and Tacitus and many other ancient Roman and Jewish documents all agree on the same true principles from non-religious secular volumes. Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was buried. The tomb was empty three days later. The Jews could not present a body. C.S. Lewis said he is either a liar, he is lunatic, or he is Lord. Is he yours? Friend, Jesus is resurrected king. And his kingdom is expanding and one day will cover the whole earth and his rule will have no end. And Christ's rule is a redemptive rule and he is making beautiful everything that our sin has corrupted. And now it is starting in the hearts of men and women. If, friend, you believe in Christ, you will be raised to new life as Jesus was raised to new life. You will be restored to the God who created you. You will be made new and you will have purpose and meaning to be an agent of reconciliation and a a representative of Christ to spread his redemptive message to the world. But an authentic witness of Christ is more than the declaration of the gospel. If we're going to be representatives of the kingdom, then we need to have a true demonstration of the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus described his kingdom as a kingdom that is good news for the poor. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 23, he criticized, Jesus criticized the Pharisees for being so particular about their religious performance so that they could be obedient to the law and they were so concerned about how others perceived them that Jesus says, you've neglected what matters most, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
Jesus said the one that is truly justified before the law in Luke chapter 10 through the parable of the Good Samaritan is the one who chooses to show mercy to their enemies. When Peter and John made a decision recorded in Galatians 2 that Peter was going to go to the Jews and Paul was going to go to the Gentiles, do you remember what was important to Peter? He said, only remember the poor. And do you remember what Paul said? Sorry, I'm too distracted just being out there speaking and preaching. No. Paul said, the very thing I was eager to do. These things, the demonstration of the gospel and the declaration of the gospel should not be held like there are two parents fighting for the divorce of what it truly means to be able to have this child of making disciples. This is a healthy marriage of what the authentic witness of Christ is. The declaration of the gospel that follows with the demonstration of the gospel. And you know what? I was speaking with some people um, recently at a wedding talking about how sometimes I can be um, weirdly jealous of being like surrounded by Christians all the time by my nature of my job. Being uh, in church ministry and often around Christians, I need to work a lot harder to put myself before non-Christians to be uh, a witness for Christ. But for you who are working in tech startups and in corporate workplaces and in the public sector, uh, you're around non-Christians all the time. And you are called to have a witness for Christ. Is it authentic? I've been praying for our church because June is coming up. And the month of June is a hard time to be a bold witness for Christ. Pride celebrations are right up in our face. And sometimes uh, we'd rather hide it under a bushel and not let our light shine. A church that expects God's power prioritizes a devotion to prayer together a firm conviction in scripture, and an authentic witness for the gospel. Church, I am praying for you this upcoming month that you, though you feel like an exile, you will remember that you are an ambassador of the kingdom. And yet, on some people, you throw the seed of the kingdom and it's gonna be hard ground. But in others, it's gonna take root, bear fruit, tend 50, 100 times fold. Jesus promised his kingdom would expand and blessed is the one who is not offended by him. Will you live in such a way that gives a reason for the hope that is in you? Will you lovingly show mercy and compassion to others who think differently than you? Will you leverage open doors that God has given you to declare Christ boldly as you ought to speak? Do you expect to see God's power in the gospel of the kingdom, in and through our church. It's a small thing, just like a little seed. But when it takes root, when it expands, it can give shade and shelter and refuge to many. We can expect that God's power will be demonstrated amongst us in this way, but it may come in unexpected ways. It may take time Yet still, we must be devoted to prayer, have a firm conviction in scripture, and maintain an authentic witness. And it may come at times that you don't expect it. 
Robert Murray McShane was a pastor in Scotland in the late 1800s. He's a, a favorite Christian figure of mine. You might know him from the McShane Bible reading plan, which is like really hard to read. And if you've read the whole thing in one year, like God bless you. He developed this in the 1800s where he wanted his congregation to read the entire Old Testament uh, once and the entire New Testament twice. And that's what he's mostly well known for. But he has an amazing story of his life. He was converted in his late teen years and he died when he was 29. And he's a person that we remember today. And he was used by God to bring revival to Scotland. But interestingly, though he was used by God, he was used by God in unexpected ways. He labored faithfully for the sake of the gospel for his flock in Dundee, Scotland. And the surrounding region at one point experienced an amazing move of God, but it happened when he wasn't there. It happened when he was traveling through Israel. And on his travel, McShane became so ill that he really believed he was about to die. And when he was on what he thought what he was his deathbed, he was praying for Dundee. And there was another man preaching the gospel on that same day. And his biographer expresses this. This other preacher, Mr. Burns, who uh, was supplying Mr. McShane's place in his absence, was on that day preaching to his father's flock. And while pressing upon them the immediate acceptance of Christ, with deep solemnity, the whole vast of the assembly were overpowered. The Holy Spirit seemed to come down as a rushing mighty wind and to fill the place. Very many on that day were struck to the heart. The sanctuary was filled with distressed and inquiring souls. And from there, all Scotland heard the glad news that the sky was no longer brass, that the rain had begun to fall. The spirit and the mighty power began to work from that day forward in many places in the land. Through this man, but when he was praying, on his deathbed for another man to be preaching the gospel. You can expect that God's power will be expressed, but maybe it's in another church. And that's why Sunday after Sunday, we're praying for other churches and other ministries. Maybe it'll be another family. Maybe it'll be in another place. Maybe it'll be not through you speaking it, but through you laboring in your second language before the Lord who can do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. We should expect God will demonstrate his power because he's promised. But we should expect that will come in unexpected times and unexpected ways. Until then, do not grow weary of doing good. Wait with a devotion to prayer, with a firm conviction in scripture, and maintaining an authentic witness for Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us for our doubting faithlessness to neglect, to believe that you are able to do more abundantly than we can ask or imagine. Forgive me, Lord God, for becoming lax in my faith, for becoming lax in prayer, for going about life not expecting that your Holy Spirit can move and expecting that the same world is going to be the same world rather than expecting your power to transform my heart and my family and our church and my neighborhood 
Help me to hold in faith nothing less than what you've promised. Help us when we think about our families and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and this city and this region and our country when we see the continued derelict behavior of certain people, when we see continued decline in moral values, help us to see nothing less than the seed of your kingdom able to expand 10 and 50 and 100 times more. And help us to be devoted to prayer, to hold fast into a firm conviction of scripture, and to maintain an authentic witness for Christ. We pray not only here, but in Serbia and in North Africa and across the world in Mexico, where our missionaries are, Lord God, that your gospel would have this power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.